Amen. Please open with me your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. It's good to be with you all, brothers and sisters, on this Lord's Day, and I am eager to jump into our text for this morning, Luke chapter 12, and our passage this morning will be verses 1 through 12. So you find that passage, and I will read it, and we'll pray together. Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven." And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. This is God's word to us, and I invite you to pray with me that God might speak to us this morning through his word. Father, this is such an important text, and you know it's one that we need this morning. It contains a truth that we desperately need, so I pray that you would illuminate that truth to us, that you would ground us and establish us in this truth so that we might fear you and nothing else. Amen. As Jesus is making his way towards Jerusalem at this point in Luke's gospel, there is a growing resistance. There's a rising hostility against Jesus and against his message and against anyone that might stand with him. Things are starting to come to a boil. Jesus has denounced the religious leaders. We saw last week how he publicly condemned them. He pronounced a series of six woes upon their spiritual hypocrisy. And they didn't like that very much. In response to this public rebuke, we see at the end of chapter 11 that the religious leaders have doubled down on their opposition to Christ. It says in verse 53, as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard, to provoke him, to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. This means that as the disciples were beginning to realize, there really are two sides in this deal. You can either side with Jesus or you can side with those who are against him. And if you choose to stand with Jesus, that may put you in the crosshairs. In our own cultural moment, we too are witnessing a rising hostility today here 
towards Christ, towards the authority of Christ, towards the word of Christ, the gospel of Christ and its demands for repentance. As Aaron Wren observed a few years back, we are no longer living in a culture that is positive towards Christianity, where it's considered a plus to be known as someone who attends church. We're no longer even living as we were in the late 90s and early 2000s in a world that is somewhat neutral towards Christianity, a pluralistic society. What's good for you is good for you, and what's good for me is good for me. No, we are now living in a negative world. Christians are no longer just considered politically incorrect. You are considered politically dangerous, a threat. Our views are thought to be hateful. Our views are said by some to even pose a threat to democracy itself, which means that if you choose to stand with Jesus and the message of Jesus today, it will put you in the crosshairs. In our text today, Jesus speaks to the heart of his disciples, both then and now, and addresses what he knows may be the natural response for many, a response of fear, to be afraid of what might happen, what could be taken away, what might be the cost if we side with Jesus. And Jesus teaches this crucial lesson that faithfully following Jesus requires the right kind of fear. I hope that's what you take away from this text this morning, that this is what the sum of what Jesus is teaching us, that if you are going to faithfully follow Jesus, despite opposition, despite adversity, despite whatever dangers and threats may arise, it requires the right kind of fear. Now, Jesus is not introducing a new idea here when he urges us to fear God. This is rather tapping into a biblical theme that has roots far back in the Old Testament, a theme that's mentioned explicitly more than 150 times in the scriptures. And if you count all the times where it's alluded to or inferred, it's countless more. As far back as Genesis, we find that God, Yahweh, the one we worship who made the heavens and the earth, he is known by the title, the fear of Isaac, Genesis 31. Job, that ancient patriarch, is called a righteous man because he feared God and shunned evil. Deuteronomy 6.13 commands God's people, it is the Lord your God you shall fear. Psalm 2 issues a proclamation to the rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. Psalm 89.6 declares, who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him? The Proverbs tell us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 1.7. The prophets tell us that our hope of God's plan of redemption is that as Jeremiah 32 says, one day he will give them a new heart, one heart, one way, that they may fear me forever. That's God's redemptive promise. So this is a dominant theme in scripture. And Jesus says that this concept of the fear of God, the proper fear, the right fear, is essential if you are going to follow him. If you're going to faithfully persist and persevere in serving Christ. So what does it really mean to fear God? What is that phrase? What do those words mean? Before we jump into the teaching of Jesus, I want to sort of lay this out. It's sort of an extended introduction, but I want to share with you sort of three aspects to what I think the fear of God really means. And first, at its most basic level, it means a sense of dread and terror, to be afraid. 
Some people feel the need to minimize or reject this aspect of the fear of God. They feel like this undermines God's goodness or God's love. But listen, it is undeniably part of the package. Exodus 3.5, as Moses encounters God at the burning bush, God says, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Moses is not just being respectful as he hides his face. This is not simply a reverential awe. Moses is afraid that he might die. This is a sense of dread. Obviously, there is more to the fear of God than simply being afraid. But listen, there's not less. This is where it starts. This is the foundation of it. A recognition of how holy, how powerful, how glorious God actually is. And then realizing how dangerous that holiness is to a sinful human being like you and me. That's where the fear of God begins. Again, as you all know, some will object to this kind of fear. They like to think of God as the kindly grandfather in the sky. But remember, this is the God who sent a worldwide flood to destroy every breathing, living creature except for one family and the animals that were rescued that day. Remember, this is the God who destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the God who sent fire out from the tabernacle to consume two rebellious priests, Nadab and Abihu. This is the God who opened up the ground to swallow Korah and the rebellious followers, his rebellious followers in the wilderness. Hebrews 10.31 tells us, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So that's the first element, the first aspect of what it means to fear God. There is a sense of dread at all that God is. But secondly, there's more than that. There's more than just this sense of dread. There's also a sense of awe that does produce reverence towards God. When we see the majesty of God's creation, when we consider the stunning breadth of God's wisdom, when we consider the depth of his knowledge, the scope of his power, when we consider the incomparable nature of his being, it fills us with a sense of reverence and awe that we are amazed especially when we consider his gracious work of redemption, that a holy God like that would love and save sinful people like us, it should take our breath away. Psalm 130 verse four says, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. This fear is not the fear of dread. There's forgiveness. There's no longer condemnation. This sinner who's been forgiven no longer need be scared that, that God's wrath is going to fall on him. But post-forgiveness, there is a sense of fear. It's awe. It's reverence at recognizing what it is God has done. I've always wondered what it would be like if you've ever watched, you know, like Shark Week or those cable TV shows, what it would be like to be in the cage that gets lowered over the side of the ship in the Pacific Ocean and to have like half of a fish in your hand and to see great white sharks coming up and trying to force their nose through the bars of the cage. Maybe I'm weird, but I kind of want to do it. <laughs> because you know the shark can't eat you. At least you think that, right? You're mostly sure. But just to see that raw power, to see the size and the speed, to see those teeth up close would fill you with a sense of awe. To see that majesty on display. This is, is part of what it means to fear God. That there's a sense of awe and wonder. 
But it drives us not to flee, not to run away from God, but to worship him, to honor him, to obey him. It is a positive kind of fear. And then if I could add just one third aspect to what it means to fear God, it's not only the, a, a sense of dread that then builds and becomes a sense of reverence and awe, but I think it climaxes really with an element of faith. To fear God means to have faith in God. It means to trust him. Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts the Lord is safe. So fear and trust are laid out as parallel, as, as different sides of the same coin. You can fear man or you can fear God. You can trust God. This aspect of the fear of God is especially evident in the gospel. Again, ironically, when you realize how dangerous a holy God is to sinful people, you realize that the biggest threat to you is God then you want safety. You want to be rescued. Well, who is it that can rescue you from God? Only God. That's why we flee to the Son of God. We come to Christ. We run to the cross. The fear of God is expressed in faith as we trust his promises, as we depend on his protection, as we receive his provision. And this is the kind of fear that pleases God. This is what he desires from us, that we would fear him in this way, drawing near to trust him, to believe in him. Listen to the testimony of the Psalms. Psalm 25, 14, the friendship of God is for those who fear him. Psalm 33, 18, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. Psalm 34, 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Psalm 34, verse 9, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Psalm 85, verse 9, surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. Psalm 103, verse 11, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. This is what pleases God. This is what he desires. This is what he blesses. Psalm 103, verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Psalm 111, verse 5, he provides food for those who fear him. Psalm 145, 19, he fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. Psalm 147, 11, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Fear is inseparable from faith. To fear God is to trust him. And when you trust him, this is what God delights in. This is what pleases God. This is what God blesses. To fear God is to trust him as your savior, your provider, your refuge, and your hope. So for to sum all of that up, what does it mean to fear God? I would suggest a, a simple description of it. It's a sober sense of reverential awe that compels us to trust God and submit to his will. You don't have to write all that down because it's not super technical, but I'll say it again just in case you want to. It's a sober sense of reverential awe that compels us to trust in God and submit to his will. That's a theme of scripture. It's the fear of God, Old Testament and New Testament. And Jesus is tapping into this theme and telling his disciples, if you're gonna faithfully follow me, you must fear God. And what Jesus is teaching here, I want to draw out five motivations that, that prompt us and urge us and help us to fear God as we ought. And the first we find in verses one through three, 
Jesus gives us this motivation to fear God, and it's the reality of divine exposure. That's number one, the reality of divine exposure. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Remember, Jesus has just pronounced a series of woes on the religious leaders, and he warns his disciples not to follow their example. Don't be hypocrites like them. Don't be infected by that mindset. Don't don't tolerate their teaching. Don't mimic their habits. And he gives us the reason why. They may think that no one sees. They may think that no one really knows, but it's only a matter of time until it's all exposed. Ecclesiastes 12.14 says that God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Romans 2.16 says on that day that God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is the reality of divine exposure. Someday the all-seeing God will lay bare on the evidence table everything, everything, all the evidence from our lives You can deceive people for a while. You can look good on the outside. You can say the right things in public. You can live a double life. You can harbor secret sin, and you can get away with it for now. But nothing escapes the gaze of God. Matthew 12, 36 says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5 says, When the Lord comes, he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Some of you in here are parents or grandparents. You know how when kids are really little, they mistakenly think that if they can't see you, that you can't see them. That's how their little brains work when they're two years old. So they think they can get away with stuff. They think you don't know as a parent, that they're climbing on the cabinet and pulling the cereal down out of the cabinet, out of the the cupboards. They think you can't hear them. They don't know you're standing there in the hallway just staring. What in the world are you doing? They sit there with the chocolate smeared on their cheeks and crumbs all over their shirt and say, I didn't eat the cookie, as if you don't know. We know that that's foolish. We laugh at that, but it's even more foolish, friends, to think that we could hide anything from God to think that he doesn't know, that he doesn't see. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Listen, every dollar spent, every word spoken, every intention, every motive, every action, every critical thought, every self-righteous thought, every envious thought, every lustful thought, every selfish thought, every bitter thought, every story you tell where you stretch the truth to make yourself look better, every time you minimize your sin to mask it and make it not seem so bad, every white lie, God sees, God knows, God hears all of it. My dad is a pastor, and his description of the fear of God has been burned into my brain over the many decades I sat under his preaching. 
And he said it many times that the fear of God is the awareness that everything I think, say, and do is both seen and evaluated by a holy, just, and omnipotent God. That's the fear of God. The awareness that everything I think, say, and do is both seen and evaluated by a holy, just, omnipotent God. This is the reality of divine exposure, and it's a motive towards the fear of God. This reality ought to produce in us a proper fear. It ought to cause us to tremble, to confess our sin, to forsake it, to turn away from hypocrisy, to bring our lives into obedience to Christ. There's a second reality that motivates us towards the fear of God. Number two, the reality of divine wrath. The reality of divine wrath. Look in verse four and five. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him whom after, who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. This is an emphatic command. He doubles down. He says it twice. I'm telling you, fear him. Fear him. But it's not just an emphatic command. It's also a very logical one. Jesus compares two different threats, what man can do and what God can do. To be killed by wicked men was a real threat. He's not making up a hypothetical danger. The disciples weren't just you know, nervous Nellies who had these paranoias. No, these men were going to kill Jesus and kill the apostles and persecute Christians. They'd killed the prophets before them. So this is real. But Jesus reasons, after killing you, what can they do to you after that? Nothing. Their power to harm you ends. The reality is we've been given an eternal soul. We're not like God in that we're infinite, having no beginning, no end. But, but while we have a beginning, our experience does go indefinitely into the future. We have an eternal soul in that sense. And we will experience either eternal life or eternal death. Jesus says, listen, physical death is just a moment. It's just a blip on the radar screen. But eternity is forever. And Jesus gives us here the secret to overcoming the fear of man. The only thing that can drive out the fear of man is a greater fear. It's the fear of God. You have to fight fire with fire. You have to fight fear with fear. While there may be wicked men who have authority over you in this life, God has authority over you after death. And those who reject Christ, those who rebel against God, are destined to experience his eternal wrath in hell. It says, fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. The word Jesus uses here is Gehenna. It's a Greek term that refers to a valley outside of Jerusalem. It was known in the Old Testament as the Valley of Hinnom. And it was once the site of idol worship. It's where the children of Israel, at one of the darkest moments in their history, had gone out to sacrifice their babies to the pagan god Molech, killing their children in the Valley of Hinnom. Later, there was a righteous king in Judah named Joash who instituted all of these reforms, and he went and tore it all down. He burned it to the ground, and he decided not just to destroy it, but to defile it, to bring shame to that very location where those wicked things had happened. He turned it into a dump. That's where they would throw their trash. That's where they would dump the bodies of criminals. That's where they would throw the diseased carcasses of animals, and it was always burning. They burned their trash. It was a site of burning and decay 
putrefaction, shame, and judgment. And Jesus often uses this sight as a vivid illustration of the horrors of hell. That's why he often describes hell as a place where the worm dies not. Flies have a very short life cycle. If you've ever seen a bunch of maggots that are working on a dead body, you know, maybe a dead possum you find in your backyard or something is pretty gross. That was the valley of Hinnom. That was Gehenna. They always kept the fires going because they didn't want that trash to pile up so that it was always on fire. Jesus describes hell as a place where the flame is not quenched. The horrors of Gehenna was a vivid, potent symbol. If you lived in Jerusalem, you know what it looked like, you know what it smelled like, you know what it tasted like. Jesus says that's a symbol of the horrors of hell. There's an eternal destiny for the wicked where they will suffer God's wrath, his justice, and this is a fearful thing. Paul describes it this way in 2 Thessalonians 1. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That's the reality of God's wrath. Multiple times in the book of Revelation, this wrath is referred to as the second death. In Revelation 21.8, it says, As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. There's a caricature out there, some of you might even be nervous right now, about pastors preaching hellfire and brimstone and overdoing it. I don't think that's the danger in the modern church today. I just don't see that happening too much. I honestly think we don't talk enough about the reality of hell. Talking about hell is not just some evangelistic scare tactic. A healthy dose of the doctrine of hell is a key ingredient for courageous Christianity. And we need to think about it. We need to do the math. Jesus says, do the math. He says, weigh it out. Measure the difference. What should we fear, men who can only kill your body, or should we fear God? Should we tremble at the warnings of these men and their authority, or should we tremble at the warnings of God and his authority? Should we be in awe of what they are able to do to us, or tremble at the thought of God's eternal wrath? Should we seek the approval and blessings of these men, these people who have power to do certain things to us in this life, or should we seek the approval and the blessing of God? who has authority over our eternal destiny. By the way, this approval and blessing that we seek from God is found in the gospel. We run to the cross. We embrace Jesus Christ as we consider the horrors of hell, the reality of God's wrath. It drives us to Christ to embrace by faith the one who drank the cup of God's wrath so that we don't have to. Because of Christ, we can be forgiven, we can be cleansed, we can be rescued. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. God has not destined us for wrath. We have the hope of eternal life. The second death has no power over us, which means that if men do kill our bodies, they're only sending us home. They're only sending us to be with Jesus. They're only promoting us to glory this confidence in Christ that we have through the gospel, the knowledge that we have been made right with God, it removes fear, not just removes the fear of hell, but it, ref- it removes all lesser fears of all the lesser threats, 
the lesser dangers that we face in this life so that we can say with the psalmist, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear what can man do to me. This is the reality that steeled the saints of old in the face of danger. That's why David could go out and face Goliath. He wasn't afraid of him. He feared God. That's why those three Hebrew young men could stand in Babylon and not bow down when the music played, even though Nebuchadnezzar said, whoever doesn't bow down to the idol I have made when the music plays will be thrown into the fiery furnace. They didn't care because they feared God. This is why Daniel could pray three times a day despite the king's edict, not caring that he would be thrown in the lion's den. This is why the apostles proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus Christ despite the threats, despite the beatings, despite imprisonment, despite persecutions. And this reality, the fear of God displacing all lesser fears has instilled courage in the saints throughout the ages. Polycarp was an early church leader, a disciple of the apostle John. Under arrest, he's being pressed to deny Christ. The proconsul says, take the oath and I will let you go. Just revile Christ. Polycarp answered, for 80 and six years, I have been his servant and he has done me no wrong. And how can I now blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul proceeded to threaten the elderly man with lions, with fire. Polycarp answered, you threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour at most. You must not know about the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you wasting time? Kill me in whatever way you see fit. That's courage. That's the fear of God, which displaces the fear of man. Martin Luther, the German monk turned reformer, stood on trial before the Roman Catholic authorities, and he refused to back down. He said, unless I'm convinced by scripture or by clear reasoning that I am in error, for popes and councils have often erred and contradicted themselves, I cannot recant, for I am subject to the scriptures I have quoted. My conscience is captive to the word of God. It is unsafe and dangerous to do anything against one's conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. So help me God. Amen. He feared God. He took the scripture seriously, which meant he could not and would not submit to the threats of men. Hugh Latimer was the great preacher of the English Reformation, and he was tied to the stake to be burned for his preaching. And he said to his companion, be of good comfort, Brother Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust shall never be put out. He wasn't afraid because he feared God. The fear of God is what makes men fearless. Jesus says, do not fear man. They can only kill your body. Fear God. Fear God. The reality of his divine wrath makes any other threat or danger seem pretty small, doesn't it? And it motivates us towards the right kind of fear, a fear that drives out lesser fears. There's a third motivation we find in verses six through seven. This third motivation is the reality of divine care, the reality of God's care for us. Jesus says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Remember, this idea of the fear of God has embedded into it the idea of faith, trust in God. And while Psalm 711 tells us God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day, he is a God of wrath, he is also compassionate. 
He cares for his own. And this, friends, is especially important to remember when things get hard. These disciples, they would face opposition. They would face hostility. They would suffer. Many, if not all of them, would die for the cause of Christ. But it was essential that this would not be understood by them as some sign that God wasn't with them, as some sort of indication that God didn't care, that God had forgotten them, that God was not for them. Think about when we suffer. Isn't that the temptation? Those are the kinds of questions our our, our hearts want to ask. Does God realize what's going on here? Doesn't he see? Doesn't he know? Doesn't he care? Jesus is speaking here to our hearts because he knows. He says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God? A sparrow is one of the cheapest things you could buy at the marketplace. It was likely a snack for poor people. You know, it's a little protein ball with some feathers. That's what it was. You could buy a handful of them for two of these little coins, these coins that were actually one-sixteenth of a denarius. A denarius is a day's wage. So this is the dollar menu, okay, in the marketplace. But Jesus says not one of those sparrows is forgotten before God. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. If God knows and remembers and cares about the sparrows, what do you think he feels about you? If you're suffering this morning, let me encourage you, God has not forgotten you. He has not forgotten you. If you're a follower of Christ and suffering hardship because you're being faithful, trying to follow Jesus, then you are the special object of God's care. That's what Jesus is saying. This does not remove the suffering, but it does bring an immense comfort to know that the God of the universe remembers me, that he sees, he knows He says, why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. This isn't just talking about God being the king of trivia, knowing random, useless information. Again, Jesus is arguing from the lesser to the greater. This statement of God's perfect knowledge of the number of hairs on your head. Some of us have less this year than we had a few years before. And God knows. He keeps keeps track. That's meant to be a comfort to us. If God knows something as significant as the exact amount of hairs on your head, Don't you think he knows about something as significant as your suffering? Don't you think that he knows in his perfect knowledge, his infinite wisdom, what he's doing and how to best work all of this together for good? If he knows something as insignificant as the hairs on our head. Let's not forget, not only does God's justice extend beyond this life into eternity, but also his care for us extends beyond just this life and into eternity. God will bring us safely home. He promises to wipe away every tear from our eyes and to receive us into his eternal rest. He promises to raise up our bodies on the last day, to glorify us, to fit us for an eternity of joy with Christ in a new heaven and a new earth. God cares. He knows. He sees. Jesus concludes this argument with some of the most precious words, I think, in the New Testament. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. What a word of comfort and assurance. We are valuable to him because he made us in his image, because he chose to love us, because he shed the blood of his son on our behalf. He has assigned and instilled a preciousness and a value for us. And he's not going to forget. 
We can trust in him. That's what this means. We can trust him no matter the circumstances. The reality of divine care should motivate us to fear God, meaning to trust him, to depend on him, to rest in his control. There's a fourth motive, and it's the reality of divine advocacy, the reality of God's divine advocacy, the ministry of Christ on our behalf. Look in verses 8 through 9. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Jesus knew the disciples were destined to experience trials. And I'm not just talking about hard things in life, like actual court trials. They're going to be examined. They're going to be prosecuted. They're going to be judged and condemned. Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, stands trial, and he is stoned to death for testifying about Christ. Paul would stand before courts and kings and crowds on multiple occasions and testify about Christ. And these examinations before men would provide a choice to be made. Would they acknowledge Christ or would they deny him? To acknowledge, it really means to confess, to testify to the truth of who Jesus is to his deity, his humanity, his lordship, his saving work, to confess him and say, that is who he is, and I believe it. Such confession is necessary for salvation. 1 John 4.15 says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Paul writes in Romans 10 verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, You will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That's what it means to confess Christ. And Jesus is reminding the disciples that though they may stand trial before men, there is a different courtroom that they need to be aware of. It's the courtroom of heaven. Jesus encourages us, if we will acknowledge him, testify to him, confess him, then he will acknowledge us. He will confess that we belong to him. He will testify on our behalf that his blood has atoned for our sins and that we have a passport to eternal joy. Jesus is like a defense attorney who declares that our debt has been paid for and we are no longer liable to the condemnation that such sins deserve. Romans 8, 34 says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus didn't rise from the dead and ascend into heaven just to sit around and sort of twiddle his thumbs and wait for the day of the Lord. No, he's actually interceding for you today. He is defending you today when the accuser of the brethren, Satan, comes and charges things against your account. And Jesus will fulfill and complete that role as our mediator, our advocate, on the last day, the day of judgment, when he gives, when he gives the final pronouncement that this one belongs to me. This one has been redeemed. But those who deny Christ cannot expect him to advocate for them. 1 John 2.23 says, No one who denies the Son has the Father. This whole passage, in, in, in all, it's always either or. It's, it's path number one or path number two. It's black and white. And Jesus says, if you deny me before men, then the son of man, this authoritative king, that's me, is going to deny you on the last day. 
This denial is not referring to a momentary faltering of faith. We know that because Peter denied Jesus in, in a sense. But he repented of that sin and he returned to Christ and he was graciously restored to fellowship with Christ and even to ministry. So when Jesus talks about denying him here, he's referring to a final sort of denial, a permanent kind of denial, a wholehearted, hard-hearted kind of denial. Rather than think of Peter, we ought to think of Judas. He's the prototype for this kind of denial. Judas permanently walked away from Jesus, rejected him, denied that he was the Messiah, disregarded him as the Son of God. And this earned him 30 pieces of silver, and it got the target off of his back in Jerusalem but it had eternal consequences. One day in the final judgment, Jesus will testify and he will declare either that he knows you or he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. The reality of this divine advocacy, this judgment of Christ is a motivation for us to fear him and to choose to suffer if need be for Christ, to suffer if need be with Christ, trusting that he will speak for us on the last day. There's a fifth and final reality that motivates us to the fear of God. And it's the reality of divine provision. The reality of divine provision. Look in verses 10 through 12. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself. Or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Again, this whole pass, this whole passage reads like a sort of like a choose-your-own-path novel. You know, if you make this choice, you go to page eighty-seven. If you make this choice, go to page forty-three. There's always two options. You can fear God or fear man. You can deny Christ or you can confess Christ. And here we find that you have two contrasting attitudes towards the Holy Spirit. You can blaspheme the Holy Spirit or you can trust and depend on the Holy Spirit and experience his help. You see, God is a gracious God who does forgive sin. He says, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Peter was forgiven for his denial of Christ. But the one who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is in a special category. And I believe, as you compare this text with, with other similar texts throughout the Gospels, that Jesus is referring to that Beelzebub conspiracy. Remember how there were some accusing Jesus of performing miracles by the power of Satan? They said he casts out demons by the power of the prince of demons. Jesus was performing those miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. And they attributed the work of the Spirit of God to Satan. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. If someone is able to attribute the work of God to the devil, if they're able to call such pure goodness pure evil, if they're able to promote such a terrible lie right in the face of the one who is truth incarnate, then God's judgment on them is already settled. Their hard hearts will go untouched by grace until the day of judgment when they will be condemned forever to hell. By the way, if you're worried that you might have committed this sin, which is often called the unpardonable sin, if that is, feels heavy to you, that's probably a good sign that you haven't committed it. That's probably proof that this isn't talking about you because people who have blasphemed God like this, they're not concerned about honoring the Lord and they're not sensitive to the conviction of sin. So if you feel worried about this or you feel 
scared about this, then you're in good, good hands. That means that this isn't talking about you. <clears throat> After this warning, Jesus kind of switches gears and, and he offers the contrast. And it's a word of comfort, a word of warning to those who had blasphemed the Spirit, but a word of comfort to those who needed the ministry of the Spirit. He's wanting to instill courage in his friends. He calls them his friends here. And he says, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, verse 11, do not be anxious. Speaking a word of comfort, a word of assurance, don't be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. And here comes this amazing promise. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. God promises to provide what is needed for those who stand with Christ, for those who suffer on account of Christ. He promises the presence and the provision of the Holy Spirit. This doesn't rule out the need for Christians to study and prepare. No, we need to know the the word. We need to study to show ourselves approved. We need to rightly handle the word of truth. We need to know the truth and be grounded in the truth and be equipped by the truth. But the promise is when push comes to shove and you're under the spotlight and the screws are being tightened down, that the Holy Spirit is going to bring to mind exactly what you should say. He's going to guide your words. He's going to help you. And it's not all going to depend on you. He promises us this help that in these crucial moments of testing, we will not be alone. As we submit ourselves to the will of God and surrender ourselves to be used of God, he will speak to us and he will speak through us exactly what we need in that moment. In every age, God's servants have been put to the test and this promise has been fulfilled. And we can be confident that if we choose to follow Christ and we end up in the crosshairs, that we will not be alone. You won't be left to your own resources. The Spirit of God will be with us and help us, helping us to persevere, helping us to know what to say. We can claim the promise of Isaiah 41. Remember, Jesus isn't teaching anything new here as much as applying these ancient truths about the fear of God for his disciples. But we can claim Isaiah 41, verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord, your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Faithfully following Jesus requires the right kind of fear. And when we fear God, we need fear, nothing else. This teaching from Jesus is meant to instruct us. It's meant to shape how we think. These are truths, friends, that you and I must believe. Truths that are meant to shape our perspective. Truths that that I pray this morning have stirred your soul to motivate you, to to redirect your affections, instilling the right fear and, and displacing the fear that is really a certain species of unbelief. The solution to the fear of man is the fear of God. The key to courage is a properly placed fear. May God instill such fear in us so that by his grace, we might faithfully follow Jesus and serve him without fear. 
until he calls us home. Father, I pray that you would instill in this church a holy and precious fear of God, a right kind of fear that recognizes your holiness and your sovereignty and your justice, the kind of fear that reveres you and honors you and does reverence to your name, the kind of fear that trusts you, that believes in you, submits to you, and seeks to serve and obey you. Lord, I pray you would cultivate this fear in us and use your word to do it. I pray that you would use this text, use this truth to change us. Lord, there are people in this room who battle fear, afraid of what people think of them, afraid of what people might say about them, afraid of rejection, afraid of criticism, afraid of failure. Lord, I pray that you would purge that fear from among us and make us a courageous church that follows Christ. Lord, when we feel the pressure, when we see the threats of the enemy, I pray that we would look to our God and see how great he is and be renewed in the fear of God. Lord, for those who do not know you today, I pray they would take seriously the warning of divine wrath, the warning of exposure and judgment that is coming, and I pray that today they would find refuge in the only place it can be found, that they would find shelter in the cross of Christ. May they trust in the gospel, confess their sins, and lay hold of Jesus as their Savior by faith and receive your grace, receive your mercy. Lord, do your work through your word for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.